Amen. That's wonderful. First place I learned uh, to teach the Bible was when I was in high school. I was a summer missionary with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And in fact, I met some folks from First Baptist way back then, Walt Hall and uh, Jason Suddeth were uh, summer missionaries with CEF at the same time. And uh, I remember one summer we were teaching uh, the story of Mephibosheth. Uh, so the way we started off in telling the story was what happened to King Saul. That King Saul and Jonathan died on the battlefield, paving the way for David to be crowned king, which of course was going to be a problem for Mephibosheth. So in order to get the children's attention, we decided I would teach the story. And then this guy would come running in at the very beginning and shout, The king is dead! The king is dead! Run for your lives! So he did. And all of a sudden, all of the children leapt up, started screaming, ran out the door, down the hall, and out of the building. <laughs> Evidently, our story was very believable. And uh, I'm not sure we finished the story uh, with them, but we did find all of them before uh, they had to rotate out. But when te teaching a child, that's the kind of things you do, right? In order to make sure that they hear the story. Um, when teaching a child, though, we teach the same biblical truths that we teach to an adult. Children need to know the full gospel. And so we make sure they understand they have a perfect heavenly father who created them, who loves them, but is separated from them because of sin. And we teach them what sin is. So they understand what it is and that we're born with the de this desire to sin. And we've all sinned and there's a punishment for sin. And it's to be separated from God forever for the wages of sin is death. But we tell them that God loves them so much that he made a way so they could be made right with him. By sending his own son Jesus who came and as a baby he grew up, lived a perfect life. And when he was an adult he was arrested, he was beaten, he was crucified, he bled and he died. And then he was buried. But three days later, he came up out of the grave. And that gives us the hope of salvation. And we tell this to children, the whole truth, the whole gospel. And that they can become children of God simply by believing in him for salvation. So even though we teach the same truths, though, we teach it in a way that they can understand, right? We build a, a bridge for their young minds to be able to cross, to be able to understand the truths of God's word. We contextualize the message so they can relate from their own experiences. Well, Paul does the same thing. He goes from city to city and before audience and different with different backgrounds and he contextualizes the gospel for them so that they can fully understand it. This fall we've been on an adventure uh, following Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke as they went on Paul's second missionary journey began in southern Syria across what's now Turkey sailed across the Aegean Sea landed in Europe planted churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and along the way he made sure that they understood the gospel in their own experiences and in their own languages and we've called the series uh, own mission and last week we looked at Paul when he went by himself to Athens and he interacts with the Athenians and the marketplace and the synagogue. And then he runs into these Stoics, these Epicureans. Those are philosophers. And they were genuinely interested in learning what he had to say because they loved hearing something new. And so they saw him as kind of the guest speaker. 
And uh, he gives, the, rather than all the other cities where they arrest him and drag him out and, uh, or bring the brethren out and kind of accuse them, they give him a platform to speak the truth, to speak what he believes. And uh, this speech that we're going to look at today um, is, there's more scholarly attention given to this speech than any other passage in the book of Acts. It's kind of the centerpiece of the book. And it's truly a classic message to Gentiles. And this morning we're going to be back in Acts 17. We're going to be picking up in verse 22 and we'll uh, study the whole chapter, the rest of the chapter. But let me read to you Acts 17, verses 22 through 31. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge this world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In this passage, Paul challenges the pagan religion of the Greeks by contextualizing the gospel for them, for these Athenian intellectuals. You and I, we also live on mission by contextualizing the gospel for listeners and for observers to understand who God is and how they can know him and be in relationship with him. There's five what we might call uh, couplets in this 10-verse uh, speech. And we're going to look at each couplet just one by one so we can best understand and apply this powerful speech. We're going to start with verses 22 and 23 where Paul presents the unknown God. So when Paul preaches in Athens, he contextualizes it. Um, contextualizing is whenever you use words to kind of bridge a gap, to help them to understand where you come from. So people who might not have a biblical background or might not have a Christian worldview, or might have totally experiences than you, might understand what you're telling to them, what you're explaining to them. And they can hopefully relate to and apply your message. So Paul is taken to a place called the Areopagus. And the whole reason Paul is at the Areopagus is because these philosophers want to hear what he has to say. Verse 19 in the, uh, Acts 17 says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. Well, if you go to Athens today, you can go to Areopagus. 
that's Mars Hill. That's what it translates as. You can go to Mars Hills. Mars Hill. It's an incredible site. Um, it's just below the Acropolis where the Parthenon is and all of the ruins of the sanctuaries and temples that were there. And it's looking down. It's a hill. And so it's looking down over the Agora, which is where the marketplace was, the ruins of this marketplace. Now, many believe this is the spot where Paul preached this message that we're looking at today. And he very well may have. But most teachers agree that Paul, preaching in the midst of the Areopagus, that's what verse 22 says, preaching in the midst, does not mean he was preaching in the midst of a hill, but he was preaching in the midst of a council that was labeled the Areopagus. This was a council of 30 folks that kind of had jurisdiction over religious teachers um, or religious teaching, kind of licensed traveling lecturers who came through. And so this council of the Areopagus would have been there when Paul delivered this message. Not on trial, but in a formal way. And so he begins by attempting to win favor with them. He says, I see how religious you are. I walk around, I can tell you're very religious people. And then he begins building a bridge by taking something they could relate to. He said, I've seen your altars. And there was this one, and it had this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, the Athenians were essentially covering all their bases with that altar. You know, it's like we got this God and we got this idol and this temple, but just in case we've missed one, this is his, uh, his altar, right? So don't get mad at us, so we'll just kind of burn the incense here just for you in case we ever find out who you are, or if we never find out who you are, that you won't get mad at us. So Paul comes bearing the good news. Y'all have got an altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who he is. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance... I will proclaim to you. And you notice that Paul says what you worship, not who you worship. That's a big difference, right? He's about to um, set a case. He's setting up a case against idolatry. He's drawing a distinction between their belief system and the monotheistic belief system in the one true God. For Christians, the emphasis is always on the who. Not the what, right? That's why you can go to different churches that worship the one true God and it's different experiences. It's not the what, it's the who. Peter, in fact, said it. Acts 4.12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The critical information is the name, which we know is the name of Jesus. So he's also pushing the Greeks' buttons here by categorizing the construction of this altar as an act of ignorance. Now remember the Stoics, they were philosophers who believed that the highest value was knowledge. And so the cardinal sin would be what? Ignorance. He said, so in your ignorance, you built this altar. And so that would have really pushed their buttons. And then the irony is that Paul, the visiting teacher, lecturer, whatever, He says, y'all built the altar, altar. now I'm going to tell you who the altar is to. And he does so with authority. Paul is not delivering a speech at the Areopagus in order to defend the Christian faith. You read these ten verses and you realize he is delivering a challenge to the pagan religion of the Greeks. And so the altar to the unknown God proves to be the on-ramp for all of these Athenian intellectuals these polytheistic, pantheistic 
uh, audience to receive the monotheistic teaching of the one true God. Now you'll notice something different here. In Thessalonica and Berea, Paul had just rooted everything he said in the scriptures. He said to him, he said, you know, as the prophet said, or the scriptures fulfilled. He doesn't do that here. He does, we don't see, Luke doesn't record that. He wrote this book. He doesn't record that that's what Paul says. Now, some people have taken offense to that. They said, well, Paul messed it up in Athens because he sure didn't use the Bible as his argument. But here's the difference. He's speaking between, before a pagan audience. And so these folks had no understanding of what would have been known as the scriptures then. They didn't revere the book. So if he would have said as the prophets, so they would say, which prophets? We've got prophets. So they, weren't, they, they didn't find this to be the authority. But the whole message is rooted in the scripture. It's just he used a different way. He contextualized the gospel for them. So Paul transitions from this opening using the altar to the unknown God. And he goes into an introduction to let me present to you the one true God. In the chapter we see that uh, Paul quickly begins to share the gospel message. They brought him here to share, so he takes full advantage by being very clear about what he believes about the creator God, the truth that he knows. So he describes God as the creator of all things, who rules and reigns over heaven and earth. Now this would be a foreign thought for the pantheistic Greeks, right? Because they had gods, but they had this region. This is your territory. You can be over this. And this one over here, you're in charge of that. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the supreme God who has authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And then he shatters their worldview by proclaiming with authority that God does not, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. That's what verse 24 says. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now remember, Paul is describing this in the shadow of the Parthenon, that great temple to Athena. And in close proximity to all sorts of other sanctuaries and temples that were there. And so you can't find a more offensive place for Paul to declare this. But he's saying these places are useless to house the one true God. Now remember, Paul's coming from a Judeo worldview. Now did the Jews, do they have a great temple that's important to them? Of course they do. Right in the center of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, the holiest site in all of Judaism. And so you think, has Paul kind of left the reservation here with regards to the authority of Scripture? Because he's kind of like saying, this temple can't house God. But if you look back in 1 Kings, whenever Solomon is building the temple, after it's built, he says, 1 Kings 8, 27, this is what Solomon declares. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So it was never the understanding that God would be housed in that temple. That that was his dwelling place. And you had to go there to see him. God does not dwell in buildings. All of creation cannot contain God. So no temple, no church, no sanctuary can either. So Paul goes further. He says, uh, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, we know that, right? God, you can't, what are we going to bring to God that he doesn't already have? But temple service was a big deal in Athens. 
You know, there was all kinds of people that that was their livelihood. And there were people enslaved to be in the temples for temple, uh, kind of servants to the temple or to the idol there. Now, Paul would have found agreement with the Epicureans. That was one group of the philosophers. Because they thought if there are gods, then they really don't have anything to do with humanity. And so they were probably shouting amen, if that was kind of a word to the Greeks. And the Stoics were grumbling. But he's bringing a full court press now against the Greek paganism of the day. This is the, he's on the offense, right? And his argument was that God is not needy. He's not dependent. He's the God who made all things. And he's the God who made you and me. The end of verse 25 says, Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We don't give to God. God made us and God gives to us. He now turns to the centerpiece, really, of the sermon by describing to the Greek gods, uh, to the Greeks, who God is and what his providence is all about. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. So first, verse 24, God made the whole world. Second, he gave all the people life. That's verse 25. And then in verse 26, third, he controls the nations. So Paul, who's this proud Jew, says to these proud Greeks that we all trace back to one man and one sovereign God. Now, of course, the Greeks thought they were more special than everybody else. They thought they were made from the soil of Greece. And everybody else is made from some other kind of soil. But we're made from here. And so he's, no, no, no. We all trace back to one man. Of course, he's pointing back to Adam. And he's pointing back to the creator. And he emphasizes two points in these verses. First, God provides for the nations of the world. He is providential. So he's saying God is interested in what's going on in the world. And he takes care of us. Barnhouse writes, what Paul is saying here is that it is God who determines how long a nation shall exist, the time of ascendancy, popularity, and decline. No nation decides this by itself. God is in control. Now, this would have been particularly interesting to the Athenians because they had seen their great city Athens on the decline for a couple of centuries. And they're saying, so God is behind that. And then we see human's responsibility, humanity's responsibility in verse 27. The proper response of man, the created, to his creator is to seek him. And if you can know him, you must know him. And you are to worship him. So verse 26, God made humanity to fill the earth. And verse 27, that what he made might seek him. The ESV Translate verse 27 in this way, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That they might grope for him and find him. So this God who creates, number one, gives life, that's number two, and third, controls the nations. The fourth thing we see is he reveals himself. Have you ever thought about how relatively easy it would be for someone who lives in Colombia that is seeking the one true God to find him. Because you think there are just so many Christians that are here. 
There are so many gospel-centered churches that they could engage with. They could bring their questions to. They could say, I'm here to learn. Have you ever thought about that? But, you know, that's not the way it is all around the world or the way it's always been. In fact, imagine yourself living in ancient Athens and feeling compelled to seek for the one true God. And you're almost groping for him, right? You're feeling your way, trying to find him, but there's no witness to who Jesus is and who God is until Paul shows up on the scene. Well, that's what they're doing. He's saying, even if you might want to know him, you're groping for him to find him. Well, there are places like that in our world right now. In fact, we have a member of our church who lives and works in a place uh, like that that I was communicating with this weekend. I'm going to be extra safe. I could probably say more. But I'm just going to refer to this person as A. I was talking to A this weekend. And some of you know who this person is, but you know how important it is that we keep A's identity under wraps for security reasons. But A is on a team who is focused on bringing the gospel to college students in a corner of the world where there is no gospel witness. A said to me that in the base country where the team is serving, there are 14 known local believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 14. Now there are other um, international folks that are living there, expats that are Christian from other countries, but they're not there to engage with the gospel with these folks. They're just kind of, they have a Christian, maybe a Christian worldview, but they're not bringing, they're not coming on mission. But A and A's team are doing that. And um, it's only 14 known locals who are Christian in this base country right now. And this is what A wrote to me this weekend. But in our base country, we have met local students every week who have already secretly been reading from the Bible. God is at work everywhere. That's what groping in our world looks like. Because of the digital age, you have access to the scriptures when once you did not. And so they're groping, they're just seeking, and all of a sudden they sit down face to face with someone who can say, I can tell you about that. A said another country where they're working among college students, there are only four known local Christians in the area. And all four are out of the country right now. A said um, that over the last two weeks, three students have responded to the gospel. Now these are all international students, but they're discipling these students so that they might engage with the nationals who are their classmates and bring the gospel to them. A said all three of those students had been searching and trying to find their way to God. Isn't that incredible? Our transcendent God, who is high above all of us, is also imminent. What does the scripture say? He is never far from each of us. By the way, this dear laborer told me this weekend that they watch our services online. And so uh, right now, what I want you to know, A, is that we are all thinking about you. We are your church. We are praying for you. We are grateful that you are carrying the banner of Christ where you are, and we are asking the Lord right now that he might send a move of his Holy Spirit to just create a revival right where you are this week. And may you know that, that we're praying for that and we love you deeply. So after introducing his listeners to the providential God, Paul then points out 
that the only proper response to finding God is worship. He says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. That's what worship really is. There is nothing we do that does not intersect with God, our creator, because he's the source of our life. He gives us breath and life and all things. And then Paul quotes a pagan philosopher. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Do you think there were people there that were saying, I can't believe he's quoting a pagan poet right now? But he does. And don't you think it probably got their attention so they might connect with what he's saying? And he says, For we also are his children. Now, the poet probably wrote that about Zeus, though we're all Zeus's children. Now, Paul says it and makes it true because we are God's children. And he's made us, he claims us for his own, and it's from this perspective that Paul condemns idolatry. Now, there is no better illustration for Paul's message than Athens. We said last week that at this period of history, there were probably more idols there than people. And so Paul says, our imaginations are not enough to depict who God is. He made us. We will not make him. Now, it's really easy for us as American Christians to say, of course idolatry is a sin. And we imagine these people have these little statues or these elaborate temples. And, and uh, we think that's just what heathen, underdeveloped uh, parts of the world do. Do you think we have a problem with idolatry in America? John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. We take anything and turn it into an idol. Their problem, uh, we have a problem, of course, with idolatry. The gods of Paul's day were mammon, you know, the god of wealth and the god of riches, Bacchus, the god of wine and ecstasy, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Um, uh, um, uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of lust and pleasure and immortality, Mars, the god of power, Hercules, the god of strength and of health. Do you know anybody that worships those things today, just calls them by a different name? The looming question is, who are we going to give our worship to? Are we going to divvy it up among God and these lesser gods? Tim Keller writes, the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. It's a serious problem for you and for me. So are you going to be honest with God today and say, God, I'm only going to give you my worship? Now, i got to keep going. And the judgment of God here, Paul condemns idolatry and sin. And then he provides the, the uh, last point by giving the judgment of God. It's as if we can hear the question. So if he's a supreme being, then why does he tolerate all this idolatry? And in verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, why does he allow the defiance? Well, it's an example of his patience and his forbearance. He's overlooking it now, but he will punish it. In fact, Paul says there's a day of judgment coming. So what's the response? To repent. And then Paul lands a blow against universalism. He says all people everywhere should repent. Just because you live in one part of the world and y'all have a family worship where you do this or you say God is that, there is one true God and there is one name Jesus we're to worship. And unless you're worshiping that, you repent. And so why should we repent? Because God has fixed a day. And he concludes by introducing the audience to this man, which is Jesus. And he said the evidence that he's the man who will bring judgment is the resurrection. When it all comes down, what matters most is what do you say about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What do you say he has done? Well, 
it goes on and it says, you can read the rest of the passage, but there's um, three responses, kind of mixed reviews. Some sneer at him because they say, resurrection, yeah, right. Others kind of say, well, tell us a little bit more. We're not quite sure we understand. And then it says that some actually believed, and he names them. Dionysius, uh, the Areopagite, and Damaris. And there were others as well. Now, Dionysius would have been a member of the Areopagus, the member, one of the Council of Thirty that responded. So in his sermon, Paul reveals this unknown God to the Greeks. And it's hard to reconcile the Athens of Paul's time with the Athens of today. Because if you're there on the weekend of Orthodox Easter, on Good Friday, you will see at the Parthenon a flag go down to half-mast to remember the death of Jesus. And then on Easter, just like Jesus, the flag will raise up. That's what's happened in Greece. Well, Paul gives us an example to follow. As believers living on mission, we must contextualize the message of Christ for the people who are watching us. We live in a distinctive way. We put our yes on the table. We say, God, where can I go? Who can I share with? We verbalize what we believe. You know, I've been convicted this week that we have one life to live. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Some of you today have been seeking, and maybe you even feel like you've just been kind of groping for God. Well, the good news is he is waiting for you. There is no performance needed. It is simply belief in Jesus. If Jesus is speaking to your heart today, would you say yes to him? Our Father in God, what a great delight it is for us to be able to study your word, to be convicted by it, and then to have application for us to live by. Lord, I pray that you would help each person out here. Help us to live for you by being on mission with you. And Father, we pray for those who don't know you, that today they would respond to you, say yes to you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. And uh, there's so many different ways to respond. Some of you just do it right where you are. Some of it, you might need, it's time to join the church. We'd love to have you. Our doors are open to you. Some of you, it's to take the next step and follow in believer's baptism. Some of you need to say, I want to say yes to Jesus today. Our choir is going to sing. I'm going to invite you to stand and you respond. stay